from the nocturnal studios of PBS 39 at the PPNL Public Media Center in Bethlehem, PA. It's time for another slimy hour of chemical-free horticultural hijinks, you bet your garden. I'm your host, Mike McGrath. Are your plants being eaten up overnight? Your first suspects should be slugs and or snails. So on today's show, we'll reveal that there must be 50 ways to kill your sluggies and warn you about one often recommended tactic you should not employ, lest kidney cancer come your way. Otherwise, it's a fabulous phone call show, cats and kittens, that's right, potential guests are busy buying copper flashing. So we will take that heaping helping of your telecommunicated questions, comments, tips, tricks, suggestions, and decidedly didactic denunciations. So keep your eyes and or ears right here because it's all coming up faster than you saving your garden with a flashlight and lettuce leaves right after this. Welcome to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden from the studios of PBS 39 at the PPNL Public Media Center in Bethlehem. I am your host, Mike McGrath. Later on in the show, we are going to tackle a very slimy topic. We're going to go over the many ways you can protect your garden from slugs and snails, with a special emphasis on one tactic you definitely should not try. But mostly, we're going to take your fabulous phone calls. 833-727-9588 is the number to call. Laura, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hi, thanks. Well, thank you, Laura. How you doing? Oh, doing pretty well. It's about 34 degrees today. Okay. Where is it 34 degrees? Well, I'm actually sitting in Norman, but I live in Golds- Goldsby. Oklahoma. Right. Okay. I have had such good times when I have visited Oklahoma. It is, there's a lot of rabid gardeners down there. Well, I am one of them, and I have a, a question for you. I hope so. Let's go. Okay. So hydrangeas are my favorite, and especially um, if they can be blue, but I have not been able to successfully raise any myself. And so every year for my birthday, which is the beginning of June, my best friend buys me a hydrangea, and I plant it in the place that I think is best, and every year it dies. And so some years I'll plant one before my birthday, and then she'll give me one, and I'll plant that one, and they both die. So I thought I would ask for some advice. Okay. Well, um, your soil tends to be alkaline. And if you're going to grow the mop head uh, variety, the most common variety of hydrangea, uh, typically in your soil, the um, flowers would be reddish pink. If you want blue ones, you would add uh, an acidifier to the soil, like peat moss. Or because your soils tend to be extremely alkaline, I might go right to sulfur. Um, Okay. I actually have added some sulfur chips, and I was afraid maybe that was part of the problem sulfur chips well you know it's where it almost looks like kitty litter or something how festive i was going to think uh, like potato chips sulfur chips i mean <laughs> well no tell me what you would recommend well first uh june is a little late uh you want to okay. get your hydrangeas in the ground before it starts to get really hot uh down there um And your hydrangeas of any type cannot take uh, late afternoon, noonday sun. They need to be planted in a spot where they're going to get morning sun, ideally only until around noon, and then partial shade for the rest of the day. Uh, It's really easy to burn them up, especially in, in your kind of big sky situation where the sun just seems to come blazing down in the summertime. I think I have a good spot. So how much water do you think? They are very shallow-rooted plants, and they are one of the first plants to beg for water. Mm -hmm. So you get them. uh, uh, When you get them, are they in pots? Yes, usually like a plastic pot, a gallon or so. Well, that's fine. Take them out of the pots, though, and shake off all that soil that came with them in the pot. Okay. And make sure that the plant wasn't buried too deeply in the pot. You want to plant it up higher than lower. Okay. Just the roots underground. So dig a nice size hole. 
Uh, put the plant in where you're going to like it. Don't put anything nice in the hole. Fill it back with your same native soil. And then every time you plant a hydrangea, drag a hose over there and set it to drip. And just let it drip, drip, drip like an annoying faucet literally for 24 hours to, okay. to really saturate that soil. All and, right. And then anytime you go, normally in the mid-Atlantic, I tell people when you go a week without rain, um, out where you are, because it can be so dry, um, I'm going to say after three or four days without rain, okay. go out in the morning, same thing with that garden hose. Just let it drip, drip, drip at the base of the plant for a couple of hours. Never use a sprinkler to water hydrangeas. Never water them with a watering can. Um, they really don't like getting their leaves wet, but they love being watered down at the base. If you wanted okay. to invest in um, those uh, watering hoses, you know, the ones that either sweat or have little yes. holes in them, that's the best. Um, okay. And keep an eye on them. Hydrangeas, when, when they start to get a little dry, hydrangeas are real drama queens. They will mm -hmm. wilt. And it won't, be, it won't be hard to tell. They'll go from, uh, you know. So <laughs> if, if they do that, you know, just water them. Now, when you're watering in the at the base, um, you can water them day or night. It doesn't matter. Okay. But All make right. sure, but don't make it a short, big watering. That's useless. You want to water them slowly and for a long period of time. Oh, and even before this, uh, do you have access to any compost? Yes. So after you plant them, you really want to spread a mulch of compost around them. No other mulches, no kind of yeah, – I don't even see wood mulch being used in Oklahoma. Um, you might have access to pine straw at your garden centers. Yes. Yeah, pine straw would be okay. Compost would be better. No actual wood mulch, no chipped up bark or anything like that. Okay. And really have a heavy hand with the water because generally you guys never have a situation of too much water in the summer, right? Not very often. Yeah. Very rare. So tell me about the timing again. If June is too late, I usually put my garden in around April 15th is kind of our frost-free date where yeah. I live. Yeah, I think so that's, I think that's good. Uh, April 15th, May 1st. But, you know, the hours of daylight are, are advancing rapidly at that point, and the days are getting markedly hotter. And you want to put these plants in the ground before it starts to get really hot so they can get acclimated. Okay, I'll do it. All right, good luck to you. Thanks so much. Oh, my pleasure. Take care, Laura. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The number to call, 833-727-9588. Tim, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hi, Mike. How are you? I am just ducky today, Tim. Thank you for asking. How are you, sir? I am doing very well. It's a bit cold here in Oklahoma City. Oklahoma City, one of my favorite places. Great gardening community there. What can we do you for? All right, sir. So two years ago, I decided to build a raised bed for my uh, tomato garden, and I built a 4 by 16 raised bed about one foot high, bed and the local garden center had suggested to fill that bed with um, a mix of two topsoil bags and one peat humus and one uh, manure bag and I did that but that year it did I didn't have any good crop I only had like yeah you should not have listened to them they should not have advised you was this an independent garden center like a family-run place well, it was actually the uh, home improvement center. It was yeah, the, the nursery. And the yeah, you're never, you're never going to do well there. You really, you're going to get your best advice. You're going to get your best materials from family-run, independent garden centers. These places need your business, too. The big box stores are, are killing them. Um, but when you go to a family-run, independent garden center, those people have been working with plants for decades. When you go to a big box store, you know, I don't care if they've got a greenhouse outside. The person telling you that could have been working in air conditioning duck work the day before. 
So that the hard way. Yeah, exactly. Um, the peat moss is not a universal soil amendment. It's highly acidic, so it has to be tempered with lime or wood ash. You never want to use any kind of manure around fruiting plants. And you say the, the bed is four feet wide, which is great, but you say it's like 14 feet long? It was 16. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, you needed more than a couple of bags to fill that. Oh, well, I meant, no, no, I meant that's the ratio that I used, but oh. I filled, like, it was 120 bags is what I Oh, did. God, you poor guy. <laughs> um, and was it cow manure? Yeah, I, I, it, was, uh, it wasn't the pure cow manure. It was the, um, and I can't remember the name of it, it was just the one that is less um, uh, intrusive, if you will, or less... Um, yeah. Uh, so, so it was it was the rundown version, basically. Yeah, yeah. You got really bad advice. I'm sorry you had to spend all that money. What did the topsoil look like as it dried out once it got out of the bags? Was it still nice and dark, and did it feel it, loamy? It did not. No, actually, yeah. it was one of those regular topsoil, and it felt a little bit on the reddish. Being here in Oklahoma City, you have red soils, but yeah. it was mixed with some sort of that looked like mulch or whatever. It was not. Oh, good lord! 100%. Yeah. Yeah, you got taken, man. You got you you, so, you you just got taken, and you you got a raised bed full of junk right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what so I did last year is I actually removed about half a foot or, or six inches of that top soil, and I tried to replace it with just a regular vegetable and garden compost. Right. But I found out that compost that was had bad reviews. It was uh, a bit of, of uh, mulch type. It was really good compost. And so I was like, oh, gosh, what am I supposed to do? Okay, then now thought, wait a minute. Well, wait a minute. Where did, you, where did you get the so-called compost? Well, do you think? If I went to the first garden center nearby, so I went to the same place. It wasn't garden uh, center. It was the uh, home improvement center. So. Yeah. You're a slow learner, Tim. <laughs> I, I am, I, am, I am not by any means a pro, so I'm trying okay. to learn my you way. Need, you need to find a good source of yard waste compost. Now, um, yeah, Oklahoma City is actually, to many people's surprise, a real gardening mecca. Uh, do you ever go to the Botanic Garden in the middle of town? Yes, yes. Why don't you go there and ask their advice on a great place to get yard waste compost. Compost made mostly from shredded leaves, no wood or anything like that in it. You may be able sure. to get it in bulk. They may have it there. Uh, there may be a municipal program that you can buy it or get it for free. And then as much of uh, your old junk as you're willing to take out, especially visible wood, um, you know, if you could get four to six inches of that out of there and replace it with compost, uh, your tomatoes would thrive. Okay. And just to let you know that I have started my own compost, uh, just uh, built a little tumbler over the uh, summer, and uh, actually over the fall, and I'm just now filling up and just waiting for the summer to start or spring to start to try and get some compost. But I need something between now and then to get my tomatoes going. Very, so very, very few homeowners can make the kind of quantity uh, that you're going to need. What are you composting? What's in the, the tumbler? I had some uh, dried leaves from uh, last fall. I put some in it, and then everything that I get in from the kitchen at this moment. Okay. Did you shred the leaves? Uh, actually, I did not. Okay. Uh, I, uh, what I did, I'm sorry, what I did is I ran them through the mower, so I didn't get a whole lot of shredder out of it, probably. Okay. No, no, that's shredding. That's, you know, oh. that's better than nothing. Um, okay. But don't overload it with kitchen garbage. That's not how you make compost. 80% of that material in there needs to be those dry brown shredded leaves. I see. Okay. Almost everybody okay. overloads those things with garbage, and then they get nasty, smelly compost. Uh, okay. I haven't but, I hadn't started yet since it is winter over here, so right. I'll, I'll, I'll definitely see that in the spring yeah. coming. You know, the best compost is made by mixing shredded fall leaves and spent coffee grounds, which you can get from any coffee shop. That'll give you magnificent compost. Sure. I'll do that. I'll do that. But find a good source of compost. Again, the Botanic Garden in the middle of town is just absolutely stunningly beautiful. You get good advice there. 
and then call your local extension office and maybe they have lists of places with reliable bulk compost. But I'll tell you, next time you go to the home store, buy light bulbs. That's buy light bulbs and batteries. <laughs> Find a good independent garden center and make a relationship with them. I will definitely do that. Like I said, I learned the hard way, so I'm trying to fix it up now. Yeah, well, without mistakes, we would never progress. That is correct. I like that. Did I just make that up? All right, Tim. <laughs> good luck to you, sir. Thank you. You too. Take care. Have a good day. You too. Hey there, cats and kittens. It's Mike McGrath here asking for a favor from you. I know it's bleak outside, and the last thing some of you are thinking about is your summertime gardens, but now is the time to think about them and talk about them. So give us a call, 833-727-9588, and we'll get you set up for a successful summer. time for me to take a little break and announce that I will appear at Homestead Gardens in Annapolis on Saturday, April 6th. But don't go looking for all the details at the events section of our website just yet, because we'll be right back with 50 ways to stop your sluggies and snails and more of your fabulous phone calls. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from WLVT, PBS 39 in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural, organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome back to You Bet Your Garden from PBS 39 in beautiful Bethlehem, PA. I'm your host, beautiful Mike McGrath. Coming up later in the show, there must be 50 ways to kill your slugs and snails. And we'll kind of try to get to as many of them as we can. In the meantime, though, lots of your fabulous phone calls at 833-727-9588. Diana, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Oh, good morning, Mike. Hello, Diana. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I am just ducky, thank you for asking. And uh, where is Diana Fine? I am phoning from Powell River in British Columbia. Oh. It's a small coastal town. It's beautiful up there, isn't it? It's gorgeous. Absolutely beautiful. Paradise. Yeah. It's, um, I, don't, I don't know anyone who has lived in Vancouver who left, come to think of it. No, no, it's very nice. And um, our climate for growing is Pacific Northwest, so a little rainy, a little cooler than a lot of places in uh, North America, but we have a long growing season, but not a hot growing season. Yeah, very much I, uh, very much like uh, southeast Alaska, that island chain down there. Um, when When people hear Vancouver or Alaska, they think you're under... 1800 feet of snow but actually the climate's very moderate yeah it's very it's very mild quite we're um pretty close to seattle Mm -hmm. so it's it's a lot like that too okay great what can we do you for well i enjoyed your book on growing tomatoes very much and i'm saving up my eggshells as we speak good good so is everybody else in my family but I grow my tomatoes in a greenhouse because we do get quite a bit of rain and um, they're susceptible to the late blight. 
And I just was wondering if you could give me some advice on watering tomatoes in the greenhouse. Yes. Um, I don't think I'm doing it right. I'm watering every day. Oh, that's to- that's totally wrong. Yeah. Now, um, you're not alone. When I was in Southeast Alaska, I spent some time down there with the master gardeners. Um, as you know, you, you can grow great cabbages and salad greens and stuff outside, but you need the extra heat from a greenhouse uh, yes. to get decent tomatoes. Now, um, how are you growing your tomatoes? Are they up on a bench in the center of the greenhouse? Are they planted in the ground inside the greenhouse? Yeah, my greenhouse sits on the ground, and the tomatoes are planted in the ground around the perimeter of the greenhouse, just as if I would plant anything in the ground. Okay, so, good. And, and they're staked. Good, good. Well, staked or caged? Right now they're staked, but I've read about your uh, recommendations on caging, so I might get some of that together this year. Yeah, just uh, go back to your, your references and see how big your plants are going to get. Um, yeah. If they're if they're indeterminate heirlooms, you want to get those cages around them early. Okay. So, mm-hmm. how do you water now? I usually go out early every morning and water. But how specifically? Walk me through. Oh, with a, with a hose with a hose at the uh, ground level. Okay. I don't let it touch the leaves. Well, you try not to. Um, I try not to. Yeah. And so you can get a hose out to the greenhouse. Oh yeah, yeah. So, it's not that it's not that big. Why don't you uh, Why don't you make the next step then and invest in some drip irrigation lines? Um, you wouldn't have to bury them inside a greenhouse. You could get the kind that uh, either have little holes in them or that actually sweat the water out. And then there would be no possibility of any kind of splashing and you'd get the most bang for your buck. Like a soaker hose? Correct. Uh-huh. Okay. And yeah. I would just leave, how often would I run that? Um, well, how hot does the greenhouse get? Well, you, usually it's not too bad. It's, um, I'm thinking in Celsius now, so it's maybe in the 80s. But okay. last summer was very hot, and it was well into the high 90s for a few weeks. Okay, and how can you vent your greenhouse? What can you do to release that heat? Well, it has two vents in the roof, and it has a side vent, and I leave the door open. Okay, so that's good. Are the roof vents automatic, or they work on a just Yeah, a... they're automatic. Okay, so you're in really good shape. Um, I would, uh, and the plants will tell you, I would run the drip, drip irrigation for a few hours twice a week. That's what I, I would. That's what I would start okay. at. Um, if you're watering every day, um, you're going to have shallow root systems because the roots aren't trying to follow the water line into the ground, and you could be causing overwatering problems. Your 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 region is not dry. There's a lot of moisture in the air, so overwatering would be a bigger problem than underwatering. Now you mentioned late blight. I I hope you don't mean that. Late blight is. Um, when the leaves get greasy stains on them, then the fruit gets brown stains on them, and then within a few days, all the plants are dead. That's not what you have in the greenhouse. No, that's not what I would get. I would get more the tomatoes would get that the black spots on them, and the tomatoes would rot, but not the plants. Huh. But I don't have that anymore because I don't have the, them outside in the rain. Okay. Um, now... Uh, you mentioned uh, my eggshell trick. Uh, that's putting uh, a dozen crushed eggshells in the planting hole to avoid blossom end rot. Do you think maybe that was your problem in the past? It, it, was it blossom? No, end? no, completely different problem. But I haven't. I have really haven't had it for years because I've only been growing uh, under shelter. Yeah. But I did have a, a serious problem with blossom end rot last year. But you know, my tomatoes last year were small and the skins were very thick like unpalatably thick, hard mm-hmm. to eat sick. Huh. Do you think that's from my watering technique or because it got too hot in there? I just, thick I've skins. never had tomato skins like that. Thick and uh, same varieties you normally grow? Um, some of them. It could I, be. I change every year trying to find the, diff- the ones that, 
do the best. It, it could be variety driven. Just keep good notes and don't grow those tomatoes again. No, I think okay. you're doing exactly the right thing. Put eggshells in the planting hole. Uh, bury the plant deep. Uh, make sure it gets good and vented on those super hot days and restrict water rather than go overboard. But in your climate, you're doing exactly the right thing with that greenhouse to get good tomatoes. Okay, great. All right. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Your book you. was great. One oh, of the most practical ones I've read in ages. So you know, when, when I write my instructions, so to speak, I try to walk myself through it. Um, I try to picture exactly what I'm doing, where my hands are, and everything like that. And that's my goal is, is to make it really clear for people. Well, you did a good job. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. All right. You have a good season. Right. Yeah, thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 833-727-9588. Bruce, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hi, right, thanks, Mike. This is Bruce in Blacksburg, Virginia. Had to get the location in before you asked. Okay. And I live low atop the Eastern Continental Divide. Oh, man. What kind of a view do you have? Um, mountains and valleys in most directions. Oh, that's sweet. All right. What can we do for Bruce in Blacksburg? Well, this has been a wacky year for, for weather, and I'm curious about ways that the local environment can signal what the plants want me to do to them, mm -hmm. or with them, or for them. Things like pruning, which is obviously concerned uh, with, with winter, as you've told us so many times, uh, but also what kind of cleaning up, or like leaf litter, uh, for people who might do treating plants of various sorts. Well, uh, plants need no treatment. I mean, that's just marketing. Uh, you know, who sprayed herbicides to help the wildflower fields? Uh, you know, who fed the Great Plains? Who was doing fungicides in the great hardwood forests of North America? No, most plants can take care of themselves. You mentioned a leaf litter. Um, the only time that becomes a problem is when leaves are allowed to collect on a lawn because they will mat down like a tarp and they'll smother portions of the lawn. And also those leaves are being wasted because they should be ground up and used as mulch or compost making. Now, if you have uh, big, say, deciduous trees that you think need a pruning, this is the perfect time to do it. Or... You can wait till they start to green up, then wait two or three weeks to make sure a sudden frost doesn't come in, and then you can do it. That might be preferable because then you can see dead limbs and you know they come off first. Um, spring blooming shrubs should always, trees and shrubs, should always be pruned right after they bloom. Things like forsythia, azaleas, rhododendrons, anything that really, uh, uh, ornamental cherry trees, things that really explode with flowers in the spring. As soon as those flowers have faded, that's when you can open up the plant, that's when you can prune for shape. Um, with roses, you wanna wait again until uh, they've been growing new growth for about two to three weeks. Make sure you're not gonna get a surprise frost in there, and then prune out any bad-looking parts, clean up underneath them. That is one plant that really does need to have a clean base, and then put a, an inch or two of compost mulch underneath your rose plants. Roses sit up all night trying to figure out a new disease they can catch, but if they're mulched with compost, the compost will intercept uh, most diseases. Um, that's, that's pretty much it. That's pretty much all I do other than planting. Did you have any other concerns? Well, um, you know, some of this, it was shirt sleeve weather a couple days ago, then the obligatory rain came through and the weather forecast is, uh, sub-zero wind chills for tonight. Yeah. So calendars are kind of hard to trust. And I was wondering if there were some, uh, lure as there is in the world of fly fishing, which is my public vice, right? Um, 
as to what kind of cues might show up just in the environment about when a say um, a tree that's that's or a shrub that's more ornamental uh, than than flowering or a little of both needs to be cleaned out so that we can uh, avoid some of the the risk of the late frost that you mentioned earlier. Um, for example. Uh, I still have some fairly small Japanese maples, right. and I uh, there. So I want to get some basic shape in there and prune out uh, lots of little twiggy things. Right. So and I don't want to prune them too early, but I'd also like to <laughs> get the stuff done before the town comes and picks up its spring brush. Sure. The best time to do that would be in the middle of a real cold wave. Um, you go, you're right. You never go by the calendar. You go by the weather channel and you look at the 10 day forecast and the time to prune is when it's been cold for a couple of days and it's going to be cold for like another week. If all of a sudden it's going to be one of these things where nights are in the 20s and the next day is 80 degrees, you don't want to prune then because you're going to stimulate new growth with perhaps um, more cold weather on the way. Conversely, you can also simply wait until the tree leaves out, until all threat of frost is gone, and then you can do your pruning. With, with maples of any kind, it's always better to prune less than more uh, because they tend to bleed sap. Uh, the best time uh, to prune a maple would be dead of winter, um, you know, when there's absolutely no risk of uh, stimulating new growth. Yeah, of course, the problem is trying to determine when the dead of winter is. Um, yeah, I, I live at about 2,200 feet, which to, to some people is a high elevation. Right. Um, You're a mile high. Yeah, halfway. Uh, but the uh, you know, I, I've had uh, Mahonias blooming on Christmas Day. There's nothing we can do about Which, this. I had my Forsythia blooming at New Year's. You know, sometimes uh, the plants are just going to respond to the weather conditions. And really, we should just get out of their way. Um, again, the 10-day forecast is, is really it. Um, let's say you do your pruning. Um, in the middle of January, and 10 days after, uh, it goes up to a 60-degree days uh, after you've done your pruning. Well, within that 10 days, everything's settled back down. The, the plant's not going to respond to that. So again, with stuff that doesn't flower, dead of winter is your best bet. But as you point out, dead of winter can include an 80-degree day here and there. So just look at the long-range forecast and try to do your work when it's going to be relatively stable. Okay, that, that sounds cool, because, again, I was hoping that there'd be some great old folklore, like... Uh, when again, you see a cloud in the sky <laughs> that has that orange tint, like Donald Trump's hair, oh that is, that's when the first apple branch should be pruned and then curled around the top of your head like a laurel reef and you ring a bell three times. That sounds cool. I, no, but I was thinking, uh, again, uh, there's some things like when the shad bush blooms, that's when the shad will be running in the Delaware River. Mm -hmm. And so that would seem to be relating the immediate weather conditions in a region um, in a kind of micro-ecosystem way. Yeah, it's better to just uh, play your aces. Like I said, if it's not going to bloom okay. dead of winter, if it does bloom right after it's finished blooming, if it's a late summer bloomer, then you can prune it, again, two to three weeks after it starts to green up and you won't harm the flowers. Okay, that All right. sounds cool. So that'll work with my, my maples, my Japanese dappled willows, and my various colored stem dogwoods, then, it sounds like. Yeah, and it's, none of those are, are ever to be pruned aggressively. You know, they're best left alone. Okay. Well, great. Thank you very much. All right. Good luck, man. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye.
Well, it's time for me to take a little break and announce that I will appear at the Environmental Fair at St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Exton, PA on Saturday, May 4th. And then I'm gonna hop on down to the Town Center Garden event in Reston, Virginia on Sunday, May 5th. But don't go looking for all the details at the event section of our website just yet because we'll be right back to end your slimy woes and take more of your fabulous phone calls. I'm Mike McGrath and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from WLVT, PBS 39 in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome back to You Bet Your Garden from PBS 39 in beautiful Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. I'm your host, Mike McGrath, and we're in the stretch now, cats and kittens. In just a little bit, we'll tell you how to deal with slimy foes like this nasty slug I found in my garden this morning. Ooh, he's an evil-looking guy, isn't he? So we're going to tell 50 ways to kill your sluggies and snailies. But first, a couple more of your fabulous phone calls. At 833-727-9588, Bryce, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Thank you, Mike. How are you? I'm doing good, Bryce. I'm ducky as all get out. Now, you wouldn't be the Bryce Harper the Phillies just acquired, would you? Unfortunately not. Not not quite the, the same power in my arm as he has. Well, and, and probably $300 million less in your wallet. But <laughs> just, just slightly. Yeah. Come on, Philly fans. <laughs> High hopes for Bryce Harper. Where is our Bryce? Where are you? I I am just north of Dayton, Ohio, in Tip City. Oh, excellent, excellent. That's where Gardens Alive is. Uh, Absolutely. That's their headquarters. All right. What can we do for Bryce in Tip City? I always thought that was a funny name for a town, you know? (laughs) It, it keeps it keeps it lively. Yeah. Tell you what, tell you what, Mike. So my wife and I bought a home about a year ago now. It's a it's a fixer upper in every sense of the term. Um, Yeah, I know. The projects pile on and. just just now, I've gotten a chance to kind of come around to taking care of my yard. Mm-hmm. And uh, in this yard, I believe I have a pear tree and a peach, or an apple tree, rather, uh, that seem to be original to the house or, right. or close to it. So mm-hmm. the house was built in 1965, and these, these are some of the largest pear and apple trees that I've seen. Okay, um, so that means they are what's called standard trees. That's their normal size. A lot of the fruit trees sold today are uh, dwarf or semi-dwarf, you know, because people don't have uh, the harvest ladders and cherry pickers and stuff uh, that a big farmer would. So yours are standard size trees, which is not a bad thing. Awesome. Yeah, so you have uh, what are called standard trees. This is the real size um, that the tree should be, so to speak, and it's the size that farmers use, professionals. Uh, most homeowners, when they're buying new trees, they get dwarf or semi-dwarf trees so that, you know, it doesn't get too tall. But you got the real deal. Okay, so what's going on with them? So, so my question to you was, well, you answered part of it. Um, so they, these are obviously much larger than anything I've, I'm familiar with. Um, uh, just like the house, the, the yard was a bit a bit out of hand. Uh-huh. So the, these these trees are, I, I'm assuming, are very much overgrown from what they should be, and have have years of of unpruning uh, to to be undone. I hope. Well, um, so my uh, question: Were you there for the harvest last year? I was. Yeah. And how'd you do? It it was it, fruitful. Oh my goodness! It, it, we we were drowning in, in in pears and apples. I couldn't couldn't keep up with them. Okay, well that is very typical of pear trees. Now you're gonna love the news about pears in that uh, generally very little is done to them. Um, They're generally not heavily pruned. I mean, you always wanna take out dead wood. Mm -hmm. Um, The thing with pears is sometimes, and you may have noticed this last year, 
Sometimes there's so many pairs on a single branch that it starts to bend and maybe even break. Mm -hmm. So if you, if you see that one branch is really overloaded with fruit, don't be afraid to thin that branch out a little bit. Um, okay. But unlike apples and peaches, you don't have to. Um, there's mm -hmm. very little that you should really have to do with your pear tree unless you notice something wrong. And these old school apple trees tend to be very strong as well. Did you have um, any signs of disease or insect infestation in them? Not too bad. There, I mean, there was a, a fair share of apples that clearly had some insect uh, activity in them. Mm -hmm. um, the tree itself uh, is, appears very healthy. Um, mm -hmm. It does have a little bit of rot in the center trunk um, that... You know, yeah, don't guess, do anything. Don't do anything with the trunk of the tree, no matter how scary it looks. If it's got a hole in it or something like that, just okay. ignore that. Um, if you want to approach the insect problem, and of course, as with the pear tree, prune out any dead wood. Um, okay. That'll give you better airflow. Um, you know, it's, it's so funny. You live in in the town where Gardens Alive is headquartered. And they are, uh, they underwrite the show. Uh, but they have a product called Surround that you might be able to buy at retail under a different name. But it's a clay spray for fruit trees. You spray it a couple of times a year. And it makes, it makes your trees look like Christmas decorations. I mean, it, it, they get the, it, like snow is on them. Uh, but it makes a physical barrier against pests and disease. So if you spray with surround a couple of times a year, totally non-toxic, it's just clay, um, you'll greatly limit those insect problems. And as the years go by, it would be wise to prune the tree, open it up in, in a crowded areas. But you know, again, with these old trees, I have a friend with a situation just like yours. He's got two big mature trees. He doesn't really do anything to take care of them. And, um, you know, he gets a lot of really high quality eating apples and the rest he just, you know, cuts the bad parts out and, and makes cider, makes pies, stuff like that. You know, if, if you don't want to do a lot of work with these trees, you're still going to get a lot of good eating from them. Wow, that's great news. All right. I, my, my one other question I have regarding my apple tree. Yeah. So there a few of the main, main larger branches coming out of the trunk have... Uh, Seemingly very symmetrical, small little holes. Mm -hmm. um, not not very deep, but almost like in straight, perfectly straight lines across these branches. That is that is the okay. yellow-bellied sapsucker. Um, oh no! Well, it, it's 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 not <laughs> terrible. Don't forget that we tap maple trees every year in a very similar way, and it doesn't harm the tree. Mm -hmm. So this is a, this is a, a really nice-looking woodpecker. And they tend to make these straight line holes, and they're sucking sap out of there. Now, if you want to stop it, um, go to a hardware store or home center and get hardware cloth, which is uh, metallic. It's, it's like uh, a super heavy-duty screen with larger uh, openings. And you can just wrap it around the area where the woodpecker is going, and you might be able to keep them away from it. Got it, got it. Well, thanks so much. That's, this is all very helpful. All right. Good luck to you, Bryce. Thank you, sir. Go hit a homer. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Take care. Yeah, you too. All right. As promised, it is time for the question of the week, which we are calling There Must Be 50 Ways to Kill Your Sluggies. Carol in Chesapeake, Virginia, who listens to us on WHRV, writes, I've been buying flowers and setting them outside in their original pots every spring, summer, and fall for the past 25 years, including geraniums, verbena, pansies, and zinnias. The past two years, however, I've had a terrible problem with snails eating the plants. I have tried nearly every remedy I could find on the internet with no success, including beer, coffee grounds, Epsom salt, sluggo, Vaseline around the tops of the pots, mothballs, garlic spray, 
eggshells and the balls from sweet gum trees. We never saw snails previously and have not done anything significantly different in the areas around the pots. Well, before we address your Molluscan marauders, we have to review your internet list as a cautionary warning to others. There's no reason to expect coffee grounds, Epsom salts, or garlic spray to be effective against these pests, but at least they're safe. Mothballs are not safe. It's shocking that they're still for sale. These little balls of kidney cancer in a box are extremely dangerous to you, pets, wildlife, and just about every living thing on the planet. Whatever site recommended them should be ashamed of itself. Now, let's take a closer look at your could-have-worked choices, starting with beer. Beer can be highly effective, especially when used as a diagnostic tool when you aren't sure what's causing overnight damage to your plants. Both snails and slugs work at night and thus often go undetected. Now, to use beer effectively, bury some small containers near the affected plants. Things like cat food cans and the little half-pint containers from the deli. Make them flush with the soil. You want to make it easy for the pests to fall in. Then, as evening falls, crack a fresh can of yeasty beer and fill those containers. Do not fill them during the day. They'll be useless by the evening. Do not use, quote, stale beer. Slugs and snails like stale beer about as much as you or I would. If this tactic proves to be effective, buy a case of the cheapest beer you can find, empty the containers of their dead drunken quarry every morning, and refill your traps every evening. Now, products like Sluggo and Escargo are pelletized yeast laced with iron phosphate. The slugs go for the yeast and then are incapacitated by the iron. A light sprinkling on the surface of the soil around your plants should be effective. Don't pile it up. Mist it slightly at dusk for optimum results. Vaseline, that's really interesting. I suspect the mollusks might actually find it comforting, as it's a lot like their slime. I can't see it hurting them. That brings us to eggshells and itchy balls. That's what we used to call those round spiked sweet gum tree seed heads when we threw them at each other as kids. Eggshells. There is some thought that slugs won't cross over a line of calcium, but for that to work, you'd have to crush the shells up very fine. A commercial product known as diatomaceous earth, or just DE, would be a much better choice. To us, it looks and feels like flour, but it's very sharp on a microscopic level. It needs to be bone dry to be effective. And if you surround the plants with enough itchy balls, I can't imagine snails trying to mollusk their way in. Now, you say you put out store-bought containers of plants. I suspect that because of their relatively small size, you're overwatering them or watering them at night which is the worst you can do just before the slugs go to work. Only water your plants in the morning and don't water them every day. Keep them a little bit on the dry side till this problem is taken care of. You can also try capturing the pests underneath wooden boards. The University of California Department of Agricultural and Natural Resources suggests laying down the boards with little stones or something holding them up about an inch off the ground. Slugs and snails will retreat to this easy protection at sunrise. Later in the day, you'll go out and scrape your catch into a bucket with some soapy water in the bottom. Taunt them as they drown. Copper can be wildly effective. Slugs and snails get electrocuted when they touch copper, which is very cool to watch. You can buy thin strips of copper flashing at hardware and home improvement stores and wrap it around the outside lip of your containers. Wear good gloves, though. Copper flashing can be very sharp. Now, Martha Stewart once solved a similar problem by hot-gluing copper pennies around the tops of her containers, which might be more workable if you transplant it into bigger pots to get a wider surface area to work with. Another option is to place lettuce leaves and citrus rinds on the ground around the pots and then go out late at night or early in the morning and collect it as the beasts are still feeding. 
Similarly, you can wet the plants down like blazes in the early evening and then go out at midnight with a flashlight and hand pick the pests. Now, be sure to check the undersides of your containers for snails in hiding and or their eggs. Snails and slugs love the moist, dark areas underneath pots. And finally, don't pour salt on them. Yeah, it makes them writhe and dissolve, and it's fun to watch, but it's also very bad for your plants. Well, that sure was some great information about marauding mollusks, now wasn't it? Luckily for you, the question of the week appears in print at the Gardens Alive website. To read it over in detail, just click the link for the question of the week at our website, which is still and will forever be youbetyourgarden.org. Gardens Alive supports the You Bet Your Garden question of the week, and you will always find the latest question of the week at the Gardens Alive website. Yikes, my producer is threatening to import escargot to my garden if I don't get out of this studio. We must be out of time. But you can call us anytime at 833-727-9588. Or send us your email, your tired, your poor, your wretched refuse teeming towards our garden shore at YBYG at WLVT.org. Please include your location when you email us. And you'll find all this new contact information at our website, YouBetYourGarden.org, where you'll also find the answers to many of your garden questions, audio of this show, video of this show, and our podcast. What do you want? Eggs with your beer? Ken Queter plays our theme song. Our chief content officer is Yoni Greenbaum. Our engineer is cheerful Charlie Sarah. Our social media director is Amanda McGrath. Check out her fine work at the You Bet Your Garden Facebook page with new postings every day. A cautionary note on today's feature. Although it may seem like getting even, don't attempt to eat your garden snails. The ones that France has made famous and which are delicious have been farm-raised on a special diet that prevents them from forming the toxins that are present in the ones that are eating your plants. Toxin-free Tavia Minnick works the phone. Our website wonder is Anastasia Weckerly. Our audio editor is Jazzy Jonas Bowen. Our video editors are Concrete Kelly Hurd and Jelly Roll Jake Boyer. Our floor manager, Jovial John DeSantis, is also inedible. Harassed and harried Javier Diaz is our director, maybe our producer, definitely not our executive producer, and will not eat escargot. Regal Ron Ruscha is our director of underwriting. Our marketing madman is Jaunty Jim McDonald. Our chief techno officer is adorable Andy Cummins. Zach the Tack Wisniewski is in the house. Our CEO, Tim Fallon, is not our executive producer, is late for a meeting, and will eat just about anything that's been soaked in garlic and butter. I'm your host, Mike McGrath. Faster than a speeding slug, more powerful than Sicilian garlic, able to leap heirloom tomatoes in a single bound, and disguised as the mild-mannered host of a public broadcasting program, I'll be back to fight for truth justice and the organic way next week.